0: Sermon number four in our Revelation series. And I just want to say off the top, thanks for the feedback. Lots of people have stopped me and said, you know, uh, Pastor Darren, when I heard the topic and what we're going to be tackling on this fall, uh, to be totally honest, my heart kind of sank. I was like, oh no, we're going to read Revelation. And uh, it's a weird book, I don't understand it, and I don't just want to spend all my time thinking about the end of the world. But after listening to the first three sermons, people are realizing, you know what, it's a lot more about my life right now and how I live, and especially in times of pressure and persecution, than it is just speculating about the end of the world. So thanks for the feedback. Well, we are continuing on in chapter 2 today, and hearing what Jesus has to say to two different churches, the church in Pergamum and the church in Thyatira. If you have your print Bible, I encourage you to open to Revelation chapter 2, or start the app on your smartphone, uh, or just follow along from the front. Before we read the text today, however, I need to tell you about a teacher named Miss Stevens and her grade one student, little Johnny. Miss Stevens says to the class, she says, okay, class, you guys have been doing so well. We're, We're learning math, we're learning how to add and subtract, and you guys are getting this so quickly. And this morning, I want to start with a very simple adding problem, uh, a real simple math problem. Who wants to go first and, and see if they can tell me the correct answer? So little Johnny, he's got his hand up. Don't you love little kids? They, they think if they push higher that the teacher will choose them. Uh, uh, Miss Stevens, Missy. Yes, Johnny. Okay, you can go first. All right, here's our simple math problem today. Johnny, if I give you two cats and another two cats and another two cats, how many cats do you have, Johnny? He says, oh, Miss Steven, that's really easy. I have seven. Nope, that's a good try, Johnny, but that's not right. Let's try again. If I give you two cats and another two cats and another two cats, how many cats do you have, Johnny? Oh, Miss Stevens. Seven. Johnny, I know you can do this. I know it. Uh, let, let's, let's do something different. Let, let's say apples. I'll give you two apples, and then another two apples, and then another two apples. How many apples? Oh, six. Yes. Yes, that's right, Johnny. Well done. Well done. Okay, now it's exactly the same, except it's with cats. Two cats plus two cats plus two cats. How many cats do I have, Johnny? Miss Stevens is so obvious. It's seven. Johnny, what the heck is with the seven cats? And little Johnny says, well, I have a cat at home, of course. Duh. Sometimes having all the necessary information is really crucial in communication. And that's actually kind of like us when we come to the text of Revelation chapter 2 and the verses we're going to cover today. uh, If we don't have all the necessary information, we are going to be going on a wrong track. We're going to be confused and we're not going to understand what it's all about. So let's read those verses. Revelation chapter 2 verses 12 through 17. Jesus says to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, That is a little confusing. What is going on here? What is is Jesus saying? It seems so weird and bizarre, partly because we live in Ladysmith in 2018 or somewhere else in the Cowichan Valley. We don't live in the first century in the city of Pergamum. We don't have all the information. But I'm hoping that once we do this morning, this will really open up to you. I've entitled the first point, Pergamum, Satan's throne room now right off the bat jesus words seem a little harsh he says to the church in pergamum i know where you live where satan has his throne how would you like it if jesus said that about your hometown you know pick any little city across canada to the church in estevan saskatchewan i know where you live where satan has his throne you'd probably say jesus Whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, I know the town's got a few issues or whatever, but generally it's a pretty good place. we got some good prairie folks living here. Don't you think it's going a bit too far where Satan has this throne? Now, if you're going to say that about Nanaimo, it would be a lot more understandable. (laughs) Just kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. If you're coming here from Nanaimo, bless you. It's all good. I'll give you a hug after. Don't be offended. Now, here's what is so helpful to understand about Pergamum. Here's the missing information. Pergamum was built on a large, high, flat, rocky hill. It looked down on the plain of the areas below. We actually have a picture of it this morning. That's where if you go there today into modern-day Turkey, you can go to Pergamum, the ancient site. You can see the ruins up on top, the amphitheater on the side. So part of the city was up on the top of the hill, And then it was all down the hillside to the plain below. Now combine that understanding with the knowledge that the city of Pergamum had sought and won permission to be the the center of emperor worship for the whole province of Asia Minor. And they won that in 29 BC with Caesar Augustus. And it happened another two times with other emperors. So that by the time the Revelation was written in 96 AD, Pergamum had the reputation over the whole country, the whole area of Asia Minor, as being the center of emperor worship. The city was fiercely loyal to Rome. And when Domitian, the emperor Domitian, ramped up that persecution of Christian believers... Pergamum, as a city, basically said, absolutely, whatever you want, if that's what you want, we're in. So the Christians in this city are really beginning to suffer in that thing. Jesus even mentions one of his faithful followers, a man named Antipas, who was put to death very publicly in the city for his faith. Now, who is ultimately behind this persecution of God's people? Well, it is Satan, of course. Now, this is starting to make a little bit more sense, but it's even more extreme than that. On that big hill in the first century stood two different temples. One was to the Emperor Domitian, as we have said. The second temple was to the god Asclepius. Now, Asclepius is kind of known as the snake god. You can see in the picture here, he's got a staff with the snake wrapped around him. Sometimes archaeologists have uncovered he was just simply a snake himself with human attributes. So he's always very tightly associated with a snake. Now the pagan priests of the temple figured out that people looked to Asclepius for healing. And so what they would do is they would charge people money to come and sleep overnight in this temple. on The top of that big hill. So people would come from all over. They would pay their money, they would have their little bed roll, they would lay it down on the floor of the temple, and the, te- the temple was full of snakes. Now they chose snakes that didn't have venom, and uh, the people would lie there and go to sleep, and the snakes would slither all over the floor. And if a snake kind of slithered over you, those of you who hate snakes are just getting the heebie-jeebies right now. If the snake slithered over you, they thought that that meant that the god Asclepius was going to heal you. Now, way back in Genesis chapter 3, at the very beginning of the Bible, Satan makes his first appearance, and he does so in the form of a snake. You got it. Genesis 3, 1 to 6. We're going to read that now. Now, the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did you really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open you will be like God, knowing good. And evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So, Pergamum has double the reasons to be called the throne of Satan. It's the center of the worship, Emperor Domitian. And as we've talked about the last couple weeks, at this point, He has made an official decree for the entire Roman Empire that everyone must go into one of his temples, wherever they're living in the Roman Empire, take some of that incense, toss it into the fire, and say the words Caesar is Lord. Most people, that was no big deal. Who cares? Sure, if the emperor wants that, go ahead. But the faithful followers of Jesus, wherever they were, especially in the city of Pergamum, they refused i will not do it there is only one lord and he is jesus and they were suffering big time as a result secondly pergamum is that center of worship for the snake god asclepius people were putting all of their trust in him they were looking to this god asclepius for healing again that is a role that only jesus truly occupies Now it all makes sense when Jesus says to the church in Pergamum, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And maybe when we first read that, we read it as Jesus kind of saying a condemning thing. But I think what's really intended is Jesus saying, I understand, I know what it's like to live under threat, under persecution. Now all of that understanding makes Jesus' next words extremely powerful he says yet you remain true to my name you did not renounce your faith in me not even in the days of anapath my faithful witness who is put to death in your city where satan lives so this church in pergamum deserves a lot of credit they're staying faithful despite the obvious persecution that's in their city church stayed faithful by doing two things number one they courageously chose to honor christ even if it cost them their life but they also did it by relying on the strength that jesus offers as we've been re understanding these first couple chapters of the book of revelation the initial vision is john turns and sees jesus in all of his glory and majesty and brilliance and he's standing in the middle of seven candlesticks seven uh lampstands and we learned that those seven lampstands are those seven churches basically representing all churches in all areas down through history and jesus we learn doesn't stand outside the seven lampstands he doesn't stand above them or below them he is right in the middle and that is so powerful to each and every christian believer who has ever experienced that kind of persecution. Christians in the Middle East right now are experiencing that. Christians in China. Definitely any believers in North Korea. All over the world, there is persecution going on. And for them to know that Jesus isn't far away, but He is right there in their midst, understanding it is absolutely beautiful. And then Jesus says, but I have... Some other things I want to talk to you about. He says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. And Jesus has two specific sins. They ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. So why is Jesus so particularly hung up on this first one, eating meat, sacrifice idols what's the big deal there well our friend daryl johnson i've quoted throughout this series is really really helpful once more he says people in that day would bring an animal to the temple of their favorite god and they would present this animal to the priests of that temple they would receive the animal they would kill the animal butcher it and then they would keep half and then give half back to the worshiper at that point The worshiper would call his family and friends and they would have a ceremonial meal joining in that feast to that God. Now the question that faced all these Christian believers was we've stopped doing that. We've come to Christ, but other members of our friends group, other members of our family have not. And they are inviting us to this feast. Should we go? Should we not go? And there was a group within the church in Pergam that it was essentially saying, look, they're idols made of wooden stone. There's, there's nothing to them. There's no, no inherent reality. So what harm would there be in simply participating in a feast to this God? Sounds logical enough. I want to show you a picture that archaeologists have uncovered. It's a limestone plaque. Dates from about 2,500 years before Jesus was born. And it was found in this little city of Nippur, just southeast of Baghdad in Iraq. So this is a pretty amazing artifact. And you can see the figure in the middle. And uh, it's a goddess holding a cup in one hand. And uh, she has got a fish in the other. And she's sitting on a throne that is somehow made to look like a duck. I don't know what the deal with that was. But if you're going to have a throne, why not shape it like a duck? And uh, so she's got that. And then just to her left, there's, there's one of her priests is bringing a sacrificial animal to her. And this is what was in people's minds. That when they did this, when they had this sacrificial meal and they've given half to the god or goddess and they've received half back and now they have a meal, their idea was when we sit down to have a meal, that god or goddess is present with us and so there's a whole lot of meaning to this more than just showing up for a dinner those followers of jesus who understood that the idols of wood and stone weren't real also knew at the exact same time what stood behind all of that facade and what stands behind it is the demonic spiritual forces of darkness idol worship even if we're not believing in it, opens us up to the unseen realm. Bible scholar C.K. Barrett summarizes it well. He says it was evil primarily because it robbed the true God of the glory due to him alone. But it was also evil. It meant that the person engaged in a spiritual act and directing worship towards something other than the one true God was brought into intimate relation with the lower evil spiritual powers now it might make sense why jesus is saying this is a no-go zone for those christians living in pergamum jesus has a second practice that he does not like there are people within the church that are saying to the rest of the people including the young people in that church you know what The whole thing about sexuality and sexual immorality, let's not get all warped about that. It's really no big deal. And what really lay behind their thinking, this was so prevalent in the first century, that there was a sharp division between the soul or a person's spirit inside of them and their body on the outside. They kind of thought of it as the soul was trapped in the middle of the body. And so the idea became spreading, especially through pagan cultures and temples, that, you know what, it doesn't matter with what you do with your body, because the important thing, the eternal thing, is your soul. And some of these Christians were wrongly buying into this very unbiblical idea. Now, the Bible, as Christians, we do recognize that the soul and the body. They are different things, but the biblical teaching is that they are a whole package. That we can't think of them as separate. They both go to together. The Greek word that the New Testament uses for this is the word soma. Again, our friend Darrell Johnson is extremely helpful. He says, the fact is, human beings do not have a soma. We are a soma. Meaning I do not have a body, I am a body. My body is not a house or a prison for my real self. My body is my real self. Therefore, what I do with my body, I do with me. What I do to my body, I do to me. My body may be the outer self and my soul the inner self, but both are the same self. That is the Christian understanding of how body and soul are one. Now, this is the root of the entire biblical teaching on sexuality, on marriage, on all those things. Way back in Genesis, God set up the pattern for marriage with Adam and Eve. And he said, the two separate shall become one. The Apostle Paul speaks to it in his letter to the church in Corinth. They were extremely mixed up about sexuality and how Christians were supposed to behave. Paul says, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one. And that really is the whole idea behind the Christian understanding of marriage and sexuality. That when a man and woman unite, that in marriage there's that coming together of both body and soul. All of our emotions, their somas are united to honor Jesus with our sexualities, to honor that special bond. And so Jesus was becoming concerned that there were so many people in this church in Pergamum that kind of said, you know what? It's all right. It's no big deal. Anything goes. What's important is your soul. Jesus saying, no, that is not it. Now, I want to say very carefully this morning, God is for sexuality. He invented it. The Bible rejoices in sexuality, holds it up as valuable, pleasurable, in and all of itself. There's a whole book of the Bible related to it. The Song of Psalms, or the Song of Solomon it's sometimes called. In fact, when young Jewish boys began to read the Bible, and at 13 the rabbi gave them official uh, permission to do that, they were not allowed to read the Song of Psalms. It was too much. They're like, whoa, junior, you'll get there someday, but not right now. It was kind of blush-worthy. So if God is so pro-sexuality, why does God set some boundaries around it? It's because God knows the pain and the heartache when those boundaries are violated. The past six months, I've I've done a lot of counseling for some crazy reason. I don't know why. I went through a long period where I didn't do any. But the last six months, I've been doing lots of marriage counseling with different couples Lots of them in distress or heading towards it. And uh, and I have seen firsthand the absolute pain when we disregard God's boundaries, when we disregard God's rules for how we are meant to live our lives. And the absolute crushing, soul-crushing uh, reality it is when one partner goes outside of that marriage bound. One of the... Uh, Christians that has thought and written the most on human sexuality is a man named Louis Smeed. He has written 16 books. He's a holder of a Ph.D. in theology from the University of Amsterdam. He's been a prof at Fuller Seminary in California for 25 to 30 years. This guy has thought a lot about this. This is what he says. He says there's no such thing as casual sex no matter how casual people are, about it. The Christian assaults reality in in his night out to the brothel. Nobody can go to bed with someone and leave his soul parked outside. The demand for self-restraint is not a killjoy rule plastered on the abundant life by anti-sexual saints. It is respect for reality. So I have a little uh, object lesson for us this morning. I want us to think a little bit for a second about a couple that's dating. And their physical relationship's pretty tame. It's pretty limited to some hand-holding, a little smooching when no one's looking. And this young couple is dating, and after a while, they realize, you know what, this isn't going to work. And they break up. And when they break up, it's kind of analogous to two pieces of paper, paper clipped together. There's a little bit of tug there. There's a little bit of heart pain. But like all young couples, they will, in fact, get over it. Then it wants to think about another couple. Maybe they're a little bit older. Maybe they, uh, their relationship, maybe it's not a full sexual relationship, but it's pretty much everything right up to that point. And after a while, they've been dating for quite a long time, and they, they break up. And when they break up, there's a lot more bonding that's happened. That, that whole sense of body and soul has started to bond together. And when they break up, it takes a lot more and it begins to tear. And that's the people that I've sat with over and over and over and they've cried their eyes out to me and they're like, I just don't understand why this hurts so much. And the reality is that what Jesus says is, is in fact true. That when we begin to unite body and soul together, it really is that incredible bonding at a deep level. And then you think about the couple who has a full sexual relationship. They've been living together for a number of years. And then it all comes crashing down. And that's pretty analogous to two pieces of paper that maybe have been glued together. And when that relationship tragically comes to an end, there is a lot of pulling, a lot of damage that gets done to each person, and it takes years and years to get over that kind of heartache. Now, in our world in 2018, that is, just seems so out of date, so backwards, that such an idea of our sexuality just seems ultimately laughable. And maybe you're listening here this morning. Maybe people are listening online. And if that's your gut reaction, I gently want to challenge you this morning that God maybe, just maybe, God knows what he's talking about. Now, I also want to be extremely clear this morning. In God's eyes, anyone who comes to him in repentance and faith, the slate is swept clean. If you have a lot of extramarital sex in your past, there doesn't need to be one second of shame. If you have brought it to Christ, asked Him to pay the price, take away that sin, there doesn't have to be one second of shame or guilt. Everyone gets a second chance. In fact, we get a third, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth chance. All right, I have an email address on the back of the bulletin. You can send me all your hate mail this week. But I do need us to wrestle with Jesus' words. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Are there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. So they ate food, sacrificed to idols, committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those to hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus says, repent therefore. All right, so most of the church in Pergamum and in the second city of Thyatira, the next church that Jesus speaks to, most of the Christian believers stayed faithful. The persecution from without, the temptations from within. What did all of that standing firm, what did taking all of that, what did it gain them in the end? What was the benefit? That's a reasonable question to ask. And that's what we're going to answer in our second and final point. I'm actually going to skip over the main part of the letter to the church in Thyatira for the sake of time today. You can, I encourage you to read that on your own. Jesus does have much of the same things to say as he did. Verse 20, it says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants, into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So, similar kind of situations happening. So I'm going to move on to the final three verses of our passage today. And my final point, the reward for faithfulness to Jesus. All right, picking up in verse 26. This is what Jesus says. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end. I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, pretty fascinating. And Jesus makes two very astounding claims here. He says... First of all, he addresses it to the ones who overcome. And he defines that as the ones who stay faithful and do his will until the end. Overcomers who are those who are willing to lose, willing to be left out, willing to be rejected by their culture. I love how Daryl Johnson says it. He says, surprise, they end up reigning with the Son of God. The issue is loyalty every day. It's an either-or and not a both-and choice. There's a moment in the Gospels in John chapter six where Jesus makes some extremely radical and bold claims <coughs> about himself. As many have begun to follow him, backed off when they heard these statements of Jesus. They began to walk away. As they describe the scene in John chapter six, people kind of slowly left. And the crowd got smaller and smaller. And finally, Jesus turns to his 12 core disciples. And he says this statement, You do not want to leave too, do you? Peter kind of speaks up on behalf of the group and gives his famous reply. He said, Lord, to whom else should we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And that's what these Christians are being commended for. Jesus is looking down at these faithful believers in the church in Pergamum and Thyatira. And when we are loyal to the end, we get this incredible promise from him that we have a right to rule with Jesus. We will be co-rulers with him. And if you think about that logically, you get to be a co-ruler with Jesus for all eternity. And then you compare that to the alternative, to turning our backs on Christ, to to co-opting to the culture and the pressure and the the persecution for a few short years. You put that on a balanced scale, that's a stupid trade. You're giving up eternity for a short time. Why would we make that choice? Again, our friend Daryl Johnson says, the second promise is just as staggering. To the one who overcomes, I will give the morning star. Now, Jesus refers to himself in Revelation 22.16 as the morning star. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you to give this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. What is the morning star in the natural world? Well, in the darkest part of the night, probably around 2 or 3 in the morning, that's when the morning star appears. At first, it's kind of faint, but it grows in brightness. And when people who study the stars see that morning star, they know that the dawn is coming. It's just a matter of time until the dawn wipes the night away. It's amazing that the morning star shows up at the darkest, at the blackest moment. And I think what Jesus is saying to those faithful Christian believers, he's saying when life hits the fan, when everything is chaos, when you feel like it's all blowing up, that's when Jesus shows up. That's when he reveals himself in power and strength to those who stay faithful to him. Now that is a promise. We've made it to the end of the sermon. You may be feeling like, Pastor Darren, I wanted revelation to be relevant to my life. I didn't mean that relevant. Uh, Maybe I've made you feel uncomfortable this morning. Maybe I hit a little too close to home. Well, unfortunately, that's kind of my job. People have said a pastor is supposed to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. But I hope along with the challenge this morning, I hope you've heard the grace, the forgiveness, the hope. And Ocean View Community Church, when we hear the words of Revelation chapter 2, loud and clear, in our whole bodies today, our body and soul, choosing this Jesus despite what is going on in our life and in our world is always the best choice. Why? Because it changes us now and it elevates us for eternity. Amen? Ian, come pray.